All right, good morning. Glad to be with you here this morning. We are continuing our series in Colossians. So you turn there to chapter 3 with me. We look in verses 1 through 17, which was painful to try to condense into one sermon. Hopefully the sermon won't be painful for you. All right, if you read with me, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, (coughs) meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. See what I'm talking about? How do you, how do you preach that in one sermon? <clears throat> Let's pray together. Oh, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is inspired. It is yours. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you love, love to apply your word to our hearts and lives so that we are increasingly transformed into the image of Christ, our Creator. We pray, Father, your word would not return void this morning, but would lead us into increasingly putting our identity in Christ, finding our identity in Christ, putting to death sin, and putting on, clothing ourselves with all the attributes of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My father was a Methodist pastor, so I grew up with the church, with Jesus being a part of my life. 
I went to college, though, and my heart was telling me that there were more important things, more satisfying things than Jesus to be had in, in life. Oh, sure, I, I wanted Jesus to remain kind of a part of my life, but, um, but my mind was really set on other things. And then one of my best friends became a Christian. So he told me that he had given his whole life to Jesus. And uh, number, number one, I thought, first thing I thought was, um, you know, I already thought you were a Christian. But number two, I thought, what a completely um, unattractive and radical thing to do. But then his life started changing in these really attractive ways. Uh, not long after that, he challenged me with this simple diagram to look into my life as to what was at the center my life. What was my life all about? I became really convicted as he shared the gospel with me and challenged me the next few weeks, and um, I saw that my life definitely didn't revolve around Christ, and I, and I ended up uh, surrendering my life to Christ then. Not too, a uh, few years later, two years or so later, I got involved, uh, really involved with this college ministry, and, and my life started to change, but a few years later, um, Towards the end of college, I was involved with this fraternity that really turned against my college ministry, and I had to make a decision between kind of being in a fraternity, uh, have ministry there, or or um, or staying involved with my college ministry. And I decided to stay involved with my fraternity. The guy who discipled me left, and I was no longer being discipled, and it, it became a little question of a little mini crisis in my life. It was a question of identity. This was all new in my life, and I, a question emerged. Had God really changed my life from the inside, or did I just get swept away into this kind of exciting college ministry? Around that time, I went to a Christian conference. When a speaker began to talk um, and, and tell a story at the beginning of this talk about a story that many of you have heard about the Spanish explorer Cortez, right? Many of you know this. When he went to Veracruz, Mexico in 1514, and upon arrival, it said many of his crew were weary and, and scared about all the unknowns and were tempted to turn back. And then he, um, he turns to them. Uh, actually, he wrote in his journal around that time. He said, we are all in and there's no turning back. And he wrote it. He then sent his crew to go out and, and burn the ships so that there would be There would be no way of turning back. Now I know that uh, some historians say they really like ran the ships aground, didn't burn them, and and I don't want to promote his mission there in Mexico. But that story was very memorable in my life because through it and through his message, I had this sweeping feeling in my heart that my identity was not tied to a college ministry or anything else. My uh, that 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 Jesus was now. Uh, not not just a part of my life. He was my life. That there was no turning back. I was all in. And maybe there are some here that are trying to answer that question in your own life. Uh, you know, to what extent are, am I all in? Is Jesus just a part of my life or is he my life? But I would imagine for a lot of us, we've been all in for a long time, for many years. But we may still sense that some parts of our life we still wonder if, if, if those parts are all in. We need a reminder of what it means 
to identify with Christ and what it changes in our life. What does it mean when it says in verse 4 that Christ is our life? What does it mean that Christ is our life? This passage explains that. And so we're going to look at two things that are completely new about us when Christ is our life. One, a new identity. And two, a new way of life. A new identity and a new way of life. So when Christ is your life, you have a new identity. Socrates once famously said in the 4th century BC, he said, To know yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. To know yourself is the beginning of wisdom. Well, our culture is pretty obsessed with this idea of knowing yourself these days. Know your identity. I mean, there's all these commercials encouraging you to do that through the ancestry, you know, uh, whatever those things are. <laughs> um, a lot are saying to find your identity and sum it up in, 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 in your gender. Some would say, one website said, simply learn your positive and negative traits and your talents and passions, and that's who you really are. And although your ancestry and your uh, passions tell you something about yourself, one of the main problems our culture finds with, um, or has with finding yourself is that it always points you, everything I looked at says, point back to the inside. You look inside of yourself to find yourself. As one writer said, self-identity is formed through self-awareness by letting go of your conditioned thoughts and beliefs. For Christians, though, your identity is not found through self-awareness or letting go of your beliefs, right? Any more than a ship in the middle of the sea finds its way home by letting go of its GPS or the lighthouse. So God sheds some pretty incredible light on uh, some anchor-like truths on our new identity here. And I want to look at three. Three uh, aspects of our new identity. Number one, the old, uh, the old you has died. Verse three says that really clearly. It just says, you have died. Now, this of course is not literal, right? We'd be pretty confused if that was a case. It's not talking about physical death. It's really talking about a new identity. Verse nine says, there used to be an old self about you. But when you became a Christian, there's now a completely new self in verse 10. The first Bible verse I ever memorized in college when I became a Christian was 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, if anyone, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or new creature. The old has gone. Behold, all things have become new. This means to be a Christian is not simply a decision to start going to church. It's not uh, not someone who decides to clean up his life, be a better person, and start following Jesus' teaching. This is why your baptism is so significant. It's not simply a, a, a sign of your decision to follow Christ and be a better person. Your baptism is actually sort of like a death certificate. It's a sign of the death of the old you and the birth of a new you. A completely new and different identity. There's a tragic story of a Muslim man in Texas who killed his son-in-law a few years ago. and his, uh, He just got sentenced to the death penalty last year. And the reason he did this is because he, he blamed his son-in-law for converting his daughter to Christianity. 
See, many cultures realize the implications that when Christ becomes your life, your identity, then your family rejects you. They start to treat you as if you were dead to them. They realize to be a Christian really means your whole identity does change and you are defined by this new identity. Paul makes this clear in verse 11. He says, your identity is no longer defined by your race, your nationality. If you look in verse 11, your your income level or your position in society, not even your biological family. You know, how, how scandalous it would have been at that time to tell a Jew, imagine preaching this text in the first century, and tell a Jew that's sitting there, a good Jew that's grown up memorizing the Torah, and says, you know, this Scythian next to you that just walked in, who knows nothing about the Old Testament, and a, he's, your former, he's a former enemy of the Jews. He's equal in dignity and worth, being renewed in the image of your Creator. How shocking it would have been to tell a proud, educated Greek that an uneducated barbarian was equally valuable in God's eyes and should be treated as valuable to him. And how surprising for a family who had slaves to come into church and their slaves come in behind them and said, no one should be defined by their slavery. Your identity is not as a slave or a free person. You have the exact same new self and should be treated accordingly. So if Christ is your life, the old you has died. Number two, verse one says, the new you has been raised with Christ. The new you has been raised with Christ. Ephesians 2 expands on this. If you look, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this is one of those verses that I, I mean, we should really read and kind of pause and say, like, what in the world is Paul talking about? Right? I mean, I'm seated in a blue chair here in, you know, University Presbyterian Church on Rouse Road. I don't feel like I'm seated in the heavenly places. Just how am I seated with Christ there? Let me give you an illustration that I hope will help. Most have heard of the old ad, uh, idiom that uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. That's pretty true. Miriam and I took a short trip to the Rocky Mountains recently for our 10th year anniversary. A couple years late, but anyway. Um, we had a baby instead, which was worth it. <laughs> uh, you know, but <clears throat> it's one thing to get home and tell the kids who have never seen mountains and snow. You know, start, It's one thing to to tell them, you know, we were on top of a mountain. We saw snow. Uh, you know, we did all these great things and we describe it. It's a completely other thing to pull, pull out our phone and put it on the big TV and show them a picture of standing in feet of deep snow with a big sign behind us that says 12,500 feet and these beautiful mountains in the background. Right? It's worth a thousand words. Pictures can show where you've been, what you've done. They, they show that you've been to an exciting event or met that famous person, right? Um, I remember I've got a picture of me meeting Bo Jackson in a hotel down, uh, well, I don't remember where I was. I was young. Um, the picture does not share how my dad forced me to go meet him, but it does show I was there with him. 
In the second service with all our young people, I'm going to have to explain who Bo Jackson is. But, uh, <laughs> but what God wants us to know here is this, that if your faith is in Christ, your identity is so wrapped up in Christ now, it is like, it's like God holding a picture of Jesus on the cross. And your old self, it's, it's dying with him there. Being crucified and now dead. It's like he has another picture of you, of Jesus coming out of the tomb and rising from the dead, having conquered sin and death. And you know what? Your new self is there with him. Fully forgiven and alive. And then he has one more. And this one is, is taken with one of those old Polaroid cameras, you know? I guess they're not old. They came out again. They do the little ones now. <laughs> you know, you, you have to kind of wait for them to develop. With God, who sees one day like a thousand years, our identity is so wrapped up in Christ that the one who is now exalted at the right hand of God is, it's like the picture's already taken of, of him. He's there. It's like the picture's already taken with us there with him. It's just kind of processing. <laughs> it's, it's being developed. But that's how sure it is. And this brings us to one last description of our identity, our new identity. In verse 3, it says, We are now hidden with Christ in God. We're in, there in verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden is a very interesting word, I think, to use there. If we think about it, hiding is significant in this story. If you remember the story of our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, you know that hiding is what they did after they sinned. They tried to hide from God. Hiding is what continued to happen throughout the Old Testament. Anytime God reveals himself as he is in all his glory and holiness, people tend to know then that they are really sinful and they hide. It's what Moses did at the burning bush. God shows up. He gets a glimpse of his glory. And Exodus 3 says, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. It's what Daniel did when he saw a vision of God's glory. It said he fell to the ground and the men went away to hide. And at the end of the story in Revelation, God is doing glorious things on the earth like causing stars to fall from the sky. And it says the kings and the most powerful and rich people in the world hid themselves from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Yeah, if you stand before God in all his glory, it's what you do is hide. So why do they hide? God is holy. And we're not even close to it. Most of us can relate with this. Think of any area of impurity or shameful actions or thoughts that you did in your life or recently. And I, I don't know anybody who would think of those and, you know, who, who thinks of those and just runs to their friends or family or spouse and say, you're not going to believe what I did yesterday. Uh, this was crazy and embarrassing and really shameful. <laughs> no, you don't do that. Uh, there's so much that so much, so many of us are still hiding we don't want anybody to know about. It's worse before God, though. We suddenly feel that God is, we know God is sovereign and knows every careless word that comes out of our mouths. And, and that if he really is holy and just, we really should hide from him and he should hide his face from us. Which is what it says he does outside of Christ. And that's why it's so incredible that in this picture that God is holding of us. Verse 3 and 4 says that we are now hidden with Christ. 
And we will appear with him in glory. In other words, we are sitting in the presence of holiness and power and the glory of God. But there's nothing terrifying. There's nothing... We're not terrified. We're actually hidden with him, with Christ. We're safe, secure, joyful, radiant. Why? Because verse 12 says that God chose us to be holy and loved so that we would be near him, so our identity would be hidden with Christ, with him. So when it says that Christ is your life, it means that you have a completely new identity. The old you has died. The new you has been raised. And you're now hidden with Christ in God. Alright, this passage doesn't just show us, tell us about our new identity, but it also tells us that if Christ is your life, this will change the way you live. You have a new way to live. A new way to live. Um, the Bible obviously says a lot about this. Um, and this passage says more than I'll get to, but I'm going to mention two here that are really obvious. Number one, we start to seek new things. We start to seek new things. Verse 1 says that if our identity is wrapped up in Christ, it says we seek the things that are above where Christ is. Verse 2 says the same thing in a different way. It says set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. This doesn't mean that we're all called to walk outside of church and start staring up into the sky. Or that we should um, you know, seek to be astrologers so that we can kind of set our mind on things above as a profession, obviously. First is telling us that it's, 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 um, it's talking about setting your heart and mind on what is now most important to you. See, the truth is, is that all people are seeking something. They're pursuing and seeking something, right? All people are putting their identity in someone or something, people or things, that they would say, you know, if I was honest, this is my life. Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician, once said it this way. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means that they employ, they all tend to this end. In every decision, he says, he goes on to say, whether going off to war or even committing suicide, people make decisions based on what they think will make them most happy in any given time. Everyone everywhere without exception has an idea of what will make them happy in life and whatever object that is, whether being successful, having money, having a a great family, those people or things become your life and you build your identity around those people and things. You work towards getting it, you work towards protecting it, you work towards having more of it. And these are the things that define your identity. These are the things that you tend to seek to set your mind on. So what Paul is saying here is that if your life is really, if your identity is hidden with Christ and he is your life, then live in a way that shows that he's actually your primary treasure in life. He is your life, not things on this earth. In other words, get a job and work unto the Lord. But don't let your mind be set on using your job to build a name for yourself. Don't set your eyes just on working for a promotion or to make more money. Don't let your heart be attached to the success that that job can bring you. Don't get your life from it. 
you have a house, maybe a spouse and some children here on earth, don't let your mind be set on finding security from them or ultimate comfort from them. Don't set your eyes just on living a a comfortable, easy life. In other words, don't seek first to find your ultimate satisfaction and joy from anything on this earth. Seek first the things that are above, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as Jesus said in Matthew 6. Say with the psalmist, Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart, my flesh, they may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. He's my banquet. He's my treasure. We're so capable of Christians of allowing good things on earth to become ultimate things, aren't we? And then prioritizing them in the way that we live, from friends to family to school to success to recreation or entertainment. Jesus told a parable one time that should humble most of us here living, living in America. He, he compares God to a king who throws this great banquet. I mean, it is a, it is a feast. It talks about killing fatted cows. And so you imagine all these fillets laid out with fun, dancing, kind of like a wedding uh, reception. And yet, he says, so many were unwilling to come to it. He says they actually paid no attention. Why? It was not because of some immoral lifestyle. No, they paid no attention because they were taking care of their business, uh, going to the farm and, and, and getting married, it says. Yet these good things, they were all good things. Yet these good things became horrible things when they become their life. They start to seek them first and set their mind on them. And start to sacrifice their true portion. I simply didn't have eyes to see the glory of the banquet set before them. The glory of having died and having a new self risen with, hidden with Christ. This brings us to our second new way we are to live. Not just seeking new things, but also we start to kill new things. Start to kill new things. You know, Randy Neighbors is a PCA pastor. He he's preached here before. He's also a, an army army chaplain. So many young people come to him and say, "Randy, I, I'd love to know if you think I should go into the army." And he asks them two questions. He says, "Number one, are you willing to die for your country?" And they say, "Well," uh, he said, "Most of them um, uh, tend to say, yeah, I think I am.'" Then he says, "Let me ask you one more question." Are you willing to kill for your country? He says this causes many to pause and think. And Paul is saying, here's a required question for Christians. Are you willing to kill? If Christ is your life, you must become a murderer. Now, of course, this does not mean of other people. Look in verse 5. Put to death... Therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Put to death whatever is earthly in you. Uh, Once God opens our eyes to the banquet of our identity and glory we have in Christ, we start to see sin differently is what this is pointing to. What once was seen as a pathway to life and satisfaction becomes a pathway to death and destruction. We start to see any sin or any good thing that becomes an ultimate thing like a cancer inside of us. Right? And it needs to be killed. The Puritan John Owen once said it like this. Look, be, you've got to be killing sin 
or sin will be killing you. Jesus uses this kind of language in Matthew 5 when he says, if, you, if, your, if your hand causes you to sin, your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out or cut it off. It's better to enter into heaven with one hand and one eye than go to hell with both. Of course, he's not meaning this literally because you can still sin with the other eye or the other hand. It just means hate sin that much. Be willing to do anything to put it to death, is saying. Romans 14, Paul says it a little different way. He says, no, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then it, make no provision for it. It literally means, he says, that we all have these fleshly desires, but one way to kill them, he said, is by no, making no provision is to, to stop feeding it. Stop feeding the flesh. Starve it. Feeding our sin... It's like, it's like feeding a lion that we are raising to devour us. We are called to starve our sin. You know, I hear this is kind of like how chemotherapy and radiation therapy work with cancer. It kills some of it directly, some of the cells, cancer cells directly, but uh, for much of it, it simply prevents it from dividing. And when they can't multiply, the cells can't multiply, they die. In essence, it starves them off. And so as you look through this list in verse 5 through 9 in our passage, and see that if you have, like in verse 8, if you have anger or slander or bitterness in your life, what are you doing to to starve it? Are you feeding these things or are you starving these things? Are you, allow, are you allowing that person, what that person has done, even if it's really, it's actually sinful and painful but are you allowing it to rule, rule in your mind or are you killing it by doing what verse 13 says? Bearing with one another, forgiving one another just as the Lord has forgiven you. We'll put a couple of applications on, on uh, the screen. Verse 15, one way you can starve it is by feeding the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. In other words, he's saying, set your heart and mind on your identity in Christ and all he has done for you. And let it just powerfully expel a desire for revenge or to hold on to that anger. Verse 5, if you see sexual immorality and fleshly desires of lust for someone who's not your husband or your wife, how and when or where are you feeding it? What would it look like to start applying a type of radiation, death to the cells of that in your heart and starving yourself from those thoughts or images? Verse 16 recommends letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When the word of Christ is dwelling richly in your identity all that you have in Christ, it starts to replace those unsatisfying fleshly desires that drain you with life-giving, glorious thoughts of your identity in Christ. Verse 16 mentions another application. Are you in a community of other believers where there's real accountability and, and, and mutual encouragement? It says, admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So verse 5, if you see the fleshly desires to covet the clothing or house or body, the job of another person, are there ways that you're feeding that desire through social media or other sources, looking at hundreds of pictures of people who have more of something you want 
And are you willing to starve those sources in order to kill covetousness in your heart? Verse 17, um, actually verse 15, 16, and 17 mentions a, the application of just being thankful, feeding yourself a life of just thanksgiving instead of covetousness. So we, we as Christians, we're just called to this life of killing sin or it will be killing us. It means killing the sinful things in our lives as well as the idolatry of good things in our lives, ultimate things we've made. Anything earthly that we seek and set our mind on on this earth, anything that we find our identity in outside of Christ, it must be put to death. The Christian uh, band, there's a Christian band named Four King and Country, and uh, they just released an album last year, actually maybe last month, a couple months ago, called Burn the Ships. It's based on this story of Cortez uh, and them burning the ships, which would be bad news if they didn't really burn the ships, but I don't think they're worried about that. <laughs> One of the lead singers named Luke uh, says he wrote the theme song called Burn the Ships from a situation that his wife went through. His wife had be, uh, was having this pregnancy and she started to have all these complications and her doctor put her on these pills. And after some time, she didn't need the pills anymore, but she continued to take them. What started as a source of relief for her became a source of life for her. And there came a point where she came to admit her addiction and was determined to put it to death, whatever had become her life, which were these pills. And so Luke said, he said, I'll never forget the day that my wife grabbed these pills and she went to the bathroom and opened all the, all the lids and she started to dump them into the toilet. And then she flushed them and said, I'll never go back. He wrote the lyrics in the song that say this, So long to shame, walk through the sorrow, out of the fire into to tomorrow. So flush the pills, face the fear, feel the wave dis- disappear. We're coming clear. We're born again. Our hopeful lungs can breathe again. Oh, we can breathe again. So burn the ships. Cut the ties. Send a flare into the night. Say a prayer. Turn the tide. Dry your tears and wave goodbye. Doesn't that make you want to burn the ships to the old self or whatever is fleshly in you? Doesn't it make you want to stop hiding before God and others and face your fear and put to death whatever is cancerous in you? Does it make you want to increasingly cut the ties with shame, breathe the fullness of life and the glory of our identity, our new identity in Christ? And not just put to death something, but put on, like clothing. Verse 12, and we don't have time for it here, mentions a new way of life where you're increasingly not thinking so highly of yourself. You're actually humble and full of compassion. You don't get easily angered, but it says you're increasingly patient, clothed, with patience and bearing with others when they offend you. You increasingly forgive and overlook wrongs when they sin when you're sinned against. Because deep down your identity your identity, you know your old self is already crucified, you're forgiven. When we don't we don't do this of course to earn anything more than we already have in Christ, as we already said. Just by way of reminder of this, verse 1 says, Christ is seated at God's right hand. You know, first century writers would have really understood the significance of this. That Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Because Hebrew 10 says that the priests, they stand daily sacrificing over and over for sins. 
Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin, it says. But see, Christ says that we don't need to continue offering sacrifices. Putting to death sin is not an ongoing sacrifice to earn anything. He says, no. When Christ offered one sacrifice for our sins, he sat down. Signifying that the work is finished and that all Christ did for us. The picture of our old self being crucified on the cross. The new self being raised again with him. And now the little Polaroid that's being developed. Our life being hidden with Christ in God. Is so secure. In the midst of the glory of God. Seated down with Christ who is our life. Let's pray. God, you truly are a gracious God. In the midst of everything that we have done and do and will do that is earthly and it deserves your wrath, that you so loved us, desired us to be with you forever, that you would send your son to do this. And so I just, we just pray, Father, as we leave here, that in new and fresh ways, we would find our deep our deep security in Christ and what he's done for us. It gives a new power to putting to death sin and to clothing ourselves with all the attributes of Christ so that we show our family and friends in the world that you are our treasure, you are our life. In Jesus' name, amen.